Writing in the late 19th century, J.C. Ryle addressed the topic of assurance. He wrote the following. He said, assurance is to be desired because of the present comfort and peace it affords. Doubts and fears have power to spoil much of the happiness of a true believer in Christ. Uncertainty and suspense are bad enough in any condition. In the matter of our health, our property, our families, our affections, our earthly callings, but never so bad as in the affairs of our souls. And so long as a believer cannot get beyond, I hope and I trust, he manifestly feels a degree of uncertainty about his spiritual state. The very words imply as much. He says, I hope, because he dares not say, I know. J.C. Ryle continues. Now assurance goes far to set a child of God free from this painful kind of bondage and thus ministers mightily to his comfort. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business, the great debt, a paid debt, the great disease, a healed disease, and the great work, a finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burdens of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels, and it lightens the valleys of the shadow of death. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands, a sure friend, by the way, and a sure home at the end, end quote. What a way to get us started this morning as we turn our attention once again to assurance. Assurance that brings such rich blessings. It is no wonder the Apostle John pens an entire letter that we would have assurance of our salvation. This morning we continue in our study of 1 John. John's writing to give us that assurance that we would rest in these treasures that we have of knowing Christ. And as you know, time and again throughout this letter, he uses three different tests to grant the believer assurance. And to enjoy the blessings of assurance, we must pass all three tests. Failure at any one of these points, of any one of these tests, brings the question of genuine salvation into view. John argues only those who have a correct view of Christ that have correct doctrine are those who have assurance. He also says that they must, this is a saving faith would produce love and it would produce obedience and this would bring them assurance that they are saved. And so to summarize all that, to have assurance of salvation would mean you must be born of God. That's the title of our sermon this morning, Born of God. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope that you do, please open them up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, if you are able this morning to rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, reading the opening five verses this morning. We read 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit illumine and empower your word to our lives.
We ask that he teaches us all things according to your word. Direct our hearts and our minds to the glorious work of your beloved son, Jesus. It is in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, church. In just these opening five verses, John restates all three tests and says all three of these tests are fruit. They're evidence of being born of God. And he also encourages in the so what? What does that mean? He goes, it means you're an overcomer. And we'll get to that shortly. But he speaks of being born of God three times in these five verses. The word born or has been born is in the perfect tense here. It indicates a past event with continuing effects. To be born of God is to be born again. It is to be regenerated. It is where God draws the individual to repentance and faith, gifting the individual with a new heart and putting his spirit within them. John expounds about those who are born of God. He, he looks at different areas and all these tests. By the way, as a church, we believe in expository preaching. Some of you have come to believe that expository preaching just means that we go line by line. But expository preaching means that the message in here is the message of the sermon. That the agenda is driven by God, not by man. That the message is God's message, not man's message. And so when you hear an outline for a sermon, it should, and you should be able to follow right along where that goes. Because it is God's message. And so this morning, we will follow the text, which means there are not three points this morning. There are four. So get comfortable. Look, following the text down through, we will see those who are born of God believe. That's verse 1. We'll see those who are born of God love. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Those who are born of God obey. We'll see that in verse 2 and 3. And those who are born of God overcome. Verses 4 and 5. So let's get right into the first point. Those who are born of God believe. John begins in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, and says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the first thing we need to see here, by the way, if you are a note taker, there are four points, but each one has two subpoints. So those of you that are good in math, that makes, good job, eight. <laughs> Told you to get comfortable. First thing we see here, under those who are born of God, they believe, they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now think about those who use the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word. Most likely they are thinking that they are speaking Jesus' first and last name. But Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. It means the Messiah. He is the anointed one. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This word believes, it's a verb. It means the one who is believing. It's the present tense. It indicates continual activity that continues to believe. It means to be fully convinced that something is true so that you completely trust in it. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to be fully convinced that he is Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. It means to place all of your trust in him, that he is the anointed one sent by God. This is the Jesus who John writes about through this entire letter. In the opening part of this letter, he refers to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, as the word of life. In chapter 2, he speaks of Jesus as our advocate and our atonement. In chapter 4, he says Jesus is the one who has come in the flesh. And he says he is our propitiation for sins. He speaks of him and says and declares he is God's son, the Savior of the world. This is the same Jesus to whom Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. 
Paul refers to Jesus this way. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. Peter would declare the same things about him and say he is our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1. Paul and Peter rightly declare who Jesus is. But sadly, since the days that Jesus walked the earth to present days, there are those that continually try to dismiss the truth about Christ, about who he is. They try to claim that he's simply a good man. He's a good teacher. He's one that just set a good example for us. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this regarding Jesus. He said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He continues, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. If you have not read Mere Christianity, I commend the book to you. That was just a quote. Enough for us to chew on for a while. Jesus was not merely a man. Jesus himself, he declared that he was God. And he was God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. In John 8, 58, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's why Paul writes in such beautiful manner when he writes to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, listen to how he writes about Jesus. He says in verse 15, he says, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This was no average man. This was God in the flesh. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the Jesus that we must believe in. Not a Jesus of our imagination, but the Jesus of the Bible, the second person of the Trinity, the Son who came and took on human form to come and to dwell amongst us, to live perfectly so that he could die as a perfect substitute, he being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Jesus, fully human and fully God, the hypostatic union, it is this Jesus in whom we must believe. It's been rightly said 
The idea of an infinite God taking on human form and suffering a brutal death at the hands of wicked men is a difficult thing to contemplate. Yet this is the gospel in all its simplicity and complexity. An infinite God taking on human form to suffer in the place of his people. It is this Jesus in whom we are to believe. And when one hears the gospel and is moved to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel, that is a work and a gift from God. John declares that those who are born of God, that they believe in this Jesus. The second thing we see about those born of God believe is they believe in Jesus alone. They believe in Jesus alone. Now, this word believe again, it also has the understanding of entrusting oneself to an entity in complete confidence, which implies total commitment to the one who is trusted. I want to read to you from Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. We read this. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. There's one God. There are no others. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. We read, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Say, what? Yeah, he loves you completely in a manner that no one else could even get close to loving you. His full love is expressed through sending his son to die for you. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that should be the object of your holy affections. It must be him alone who is the sole object of our believing. Now, why do we have to address this? Because there are some who think that faith comes to be something like a smorgasbord. And they get to pick and choose from various places things that they want to believe. And they think they can have all these other things and then have some Jesus too. But you cannot because he is exclusive. He declared of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. There were no other ways all roads do not lead to heaven. Christ is the way. He is the door. He is the only way. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven amongst which men must be saved. It is only Jesus. So the problem with a buffet style of faith is that you are mixing truth and error. You're mixing the worship of a true God with the worship of false gods. And there are people who blend Christianity with Eastern or New Age beliefs. They go, well, I like this piece and I, I like that thing and I'll mix it together with Christ. Maybe it's a little Buddhism. Maybe a little mysticism, a little astrology, a little practice of spiritual energy. God is very clear. This is paganism, and it is idolatry, and we must flee. We must repent. It is in Christ alone that we place our trust. It is in him alone that we pursue God does not look lightly upon idolatry. To say that you believe in Jesus as the Christ while holding other mystical practices and beliefs, the Bible declares that as spiritual adultery. If you hold other beliefs, you show that you do not trust Christ. Christ. 
that Christ is not enough. And if you willfully hold on to these beliefs and these practices, once knowing the truth about Christ, you have no assurance that you have been born of God. Those who are born of God believe. They believe that Jesus is the Christ and they believe in Jesus alone because that is what he has declared. He is the truth. Going anywhere else or mixing any other ideology, ideology, excuse me, ideologies. When your tongue goes faster than your brain or your brain goes faster than your tongue, I'm not sure. Going anywhere outside of Christ, picking and choosing what ideologies you want to add, it only reveals that you truly do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. It speaks volumes. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, he warns this, quote, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself, end quote. We don't have the truth apart from Christ. He is the truth. But when you know the truth, when you know Jesus, you know that you have everything. He is the greatest treasure. Nothing else compares to him. Well, we see an example of this, of those who get converted in Acts chapter 19. They once practiced magic arts. And they get converted, and what do they do? They take all of their books, and they bring them out to the street, and they burn them. They flee from everything else. They flee from all paganism, and they run to Christ. They don't say, well, I still like some parts, and I'll keep this book or that book, and, you know, I still like what it says, and I like doing it sometimes. There's absolute repentance. Repentance is a 180-degree turn. And that's what you see in those who are born of God. They renounce their former practices. They don't mix them together with Christ. Think about this. No true disciple of Christ can mix doctrines of demons with doctrines of God. Cannot be done. And so perhaps you feel like you need to dabble in other teachings outside of Christ's teachings. The Bible would declare you truly do not know Christ. If you're dabbling in New Age teachings, in teachings of Buddha, or anything else that shows that you don't have true faith in Christ, there is an answer. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn away from all that other junk and turn to the one who is truth. The one who came to give his life in your place, to die in your place. The one who would give you his very own righteousness that you could be reconciled back to the Father. Those who are born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ and they believe in Jesus alone. Beyond believing in Jesus, those born of God also love as God loves. We're moving on to point number two. Those who are born of God love. Look back at your Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. First thing we see clearly here is there needs to be, if those who are born of God, they have a love for God. And apart from the work of God in our life, the work of regeneration, we do not love God. We're naturally haters of God. And don't get uncomfortable in your seat and say, well, you don't know me and I'm not that bad. I know what God has said in his word. And he says, none of us are righteous. None of us seek after God. That we all turned our own way and gone after what we want to go after. And it wasn't God. We are naturally haters of God. Darkness hates light. 
we do not seek God. We do not seek his ways. Instead, we do what is naturally right in our own eyes. We don't submit to God's ways. In the flesh, we only love the unholy trinity. Me, myself, and I. But those who are born of God, those who have been born again, they're given a new heart. God's spirit takes up residence within them. And they are changed. When a person responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, true transformation takes place within them. The gospel that saves them is the gospel that changes them. The grace that is poured out upon them in salvation is the same grace that we heard from Titus chapter 2 that trains them to turn from sin and to turn to God. Remember, repentance, absolutely turning around and going the other way. It's turning from man's way to turn to God's way. It's turning from lawlessness to righteousness. It's turning from darkness to light. Those who are born of God show a stark contrast from who they were before salvation in Christ. Those who were God-haters are now god lovers. Those who rebelled against God now submit to his will. Those who enjoyed sin are now broken over sin. Those who sought to promote sin now confess sin and desire to repent from it. There's a contrast. And how did that all happen? Because of what John has already said. Earlier in this letter, he said, God first loved us. It was the initiation of God. It wasn't one of the best decisions that we've ever made. It was a decision made before the foundation of the world, that God would choose us in Christ Jesus. That we would no longer be who we were in our former self, but we would be new in Christ. Think about it, beloved. You have been chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. He would send his son to live that perfect life so he could die as a perfect sacrifice, as a substitute for you. Jesus himself would say this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The Father has demonstrated his love by sending his Son. The Son has demonstrated his love for us by laying down his life for us. And the Spirit has demonstrated his love by pouring God's love into our hearts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The work of God in our lives. This all testifies to those who have been born of God. It is they in response to God's love for them that they now love God. John's argued earlier in this letter that the way that a believer demonstrates love for God, a God in whom they cannot see, is by loving his people in whom they can see. And so those who are born of God love God's people. That's the second point of this. Love for God's people. If you have been with us, we have expounded and unpacked this time and again. However, John is not finished writing about it. Again, verses 1 and 2, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Those who are born of God love the Father, and they love his children. Those who are born of God love the bridegroom and the bride. They love Jesus and his church. A love for God cannot be divorced from the love of his people. And the reverse is true. A love for God's people cannot be divorced from a love for God. You see, you cannot love God's people if you truly do not love God. 
It is artificial. It is superficial. And it is not lasting. You could try your best in your flesh, but you will fail. But if your motivation through the Spirit of God is to love God first, you will do so by loving God's people. So love for others is rooted, it's grounded in our love of God. So let me ask you this, do you always feel like being loving? I like those smirks and them. Hey. That was good. Thank you, this side. This side, I heard nothing. But I got a lot over here, which means you guys need to mingle over here, need to mingle over there. We don't always feel like loving. But our love for God is the motivating factor, not our feelings. Feelings, though they might be real, they're not always right. And they don't always lead us in righteousness. But to be motivated by the love of God and the love for God causes us to love his people. And when we love God, we keep his commandments which is first and foremost to love others. John has made this command abundantly clear in this letter. Back in chapter 3, in verse 11, if you want to look back a page. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. On to chapter 4, verse 7. He says again, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. On to verse 12 of chapter 4. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Over and over and over and over again. Those of you parents that get upset when you have to repeat yourself to your children, realize that our Heavenly Father does the same with us. He repeats himself over and over and over again out of love. And so love is motivated by our love for God, the love that he has poured into our hearts. And this is why those who have been born of God do not simply put their foot down and refuse to love others, others who they think don't deserve their love. Listen, first of all, there's, there's a fallacy in that statement. It's God's love that we are giving them, not my love. I'm an instrument being used by God that his love would flow in me and through me that others would experience the love of God. And if we stop and pause, we realize that none of us here deserve the love of God. And since we don't deserve the love of God, it is only through the power of God's Spirit that we can humbly display His unmerited love to others whom also don't deserve love. I don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve God's love. But we're to love others the way that God has loved us. So let me ask you a question. How many of you are living perfectly in your walk with Jesus? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> because by raising your hand, you would prove that you're a liar, which means you're not walking perfectly. Yet God loves you with patience and with kindness. And so who are you or who am I not to do the same towards God's people? Those who are born of God love God's people out of humility with patience and kindness. I mean, think about this. If there were some hidden cameras in the common places of your house and a video feed came up on here of some stored footage, Thank you for that. And the footage was plain. Would we be horrified or would God be glorified by what we see? Think about it. Husband and wife, wife and husband, 
are you loving God by humbly loving one another with patience and kindness, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you? Siblings. Siblings. Even young siblings. Are you loving God by humbly loving and serving one another? Are you helping one another instead of picking on one another? Are you single here? What would the footage show you in your singleness using your time to build up other believers? Would you be seen interceding in prayer for fellow believers? Would they see the demonstration of love for others in your life? Because John makes it crystal clear that those who are born of God love God by demonstrating his love to his people. And so those who are born of God, they believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. Those who are born of God love God by loving his people. And those who are born of God, John continues in our past this morning and says they obey God. Point number three, those who are born of God obey Look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So the first thing we see here is that obedience testifies to being regenerated, to, to being born again. Without God gifting us with repentance and faith, we are in bondage to our flesh Without his spirit, we have the inability to love God or to please God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, we read, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Which means what? Without the work, without God's work of regeneration, we would have no chance of obeying God. We wouldn't desire to obey him. We wouldn't be able to, even if we had the desire. But the new birth changes all of that. Those who are born of God now love God, which means they desire to please God. They now long to bring him glory. Their life has been radically redirected so that all they do might be pleasing in his sight. Obedience testifies to the genuineness of one's faith. James argues it this way. He says, listen, faith without works is dead. There should be fruit of salvation. You know, it's easy to use words and to say anything. Words are, are, are simply words. Anyone can say that they believe. But those who are born of God are those who are equipped by the Spirit to obey God. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we read this. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." Look, those who are born of God have been freed from the bondage of sin. And they now live in the spirit which is able to obey God and his commands. Quoting J.C. Ryle again, he said, quote, Obedience is the only reality. It is faith visible, faith acting, and faith manifest. It is the test of real discipleship amongst the Lord's people, end quote. So with that, I stop and say, consider your own life. Are you habitually disobeying God in anything? And so let's get very practical. Do your sexual ethics line up with God's? Do you entertain sinful thoughts instead of taking them captive to obey Christ? Do you view sinful material rather than crying out to God to help to put the temptation to death? Do you engage in sinful activity by being deceived by Satan's propaganda, which says you're, you're only human and, and everybody does it?
Don't look at me. I'm asking you. <laughs> Puts it in a very practical setting. That's just one area of our lives. Take into every area and start assessing. The areas of my life that I'm habitually walking in disobedience. Because as a Christian... As a child of God, you have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. You have access to the Word of God. You have been given the Spirit of God. And you can come to the throne of God whenever you need to. You have all things. And though our obedience on this side of heaven will be flawed. It should actively be sought at all times. We seek to obey. But rest assured, we cannot stand against temptation in our flesh. In our flesh, we will fail over and over and over again. It is only by abiding in his spirit that we have victory. So heed this warning from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have a warning and we have a promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you understand what he's saying? Those famous words, I've got this. And you find out you don't. Those famous words of this is no longer a problem for me, and you find out it actually is. There's the warning. Don't stand firm in your own abilities. But he goes on with the promise. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Heed the warning. You're not going to stand in your own strength. The promise, you can stand in Christ. That he will enable you to endure through that you cannot stop and say, well, I had to sin. There was no other option. You had Christ holding you fast. And he will get you through the temptation. And so obedience testifies of the work of God's grace in the believer. And so those who are born of God desire to obey God. Second thing about those who are born of God obey is that obedience testifies to love. Verse 3 of 1 John chapter 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Love fuels obedience. When the believer obeys God, they are communicating that they love God. Three times in John chapter 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This means being intentionally attentive and careful to honor God. And so we would ask ourselves these questions. Do these thoughts that I am dwelling on please God? Will this action demonstrate my love for God? Do I want to communicate that I do not love God by acting disobediently? Am I currently not showing God love by actively living in my disobedience? Is there any disobedience in my life? So these are questions that we should stop and ask ourselves. Because those who are born of God, yes, they will still fall into sin, but they will grieve over sin. And they will repent from sin. You know, for some of us, just the word obedience comes across as very domineering, very oppressive. And so it's helpful what John says at the end of verse 3. He says, his commandments are not burdensome. It means they're not heavy, they're not crushing, they're not oppressive, and they're not a burden because God has given the believer grace to obey. So combine the believer's love for God and his empowering grace, the commandments are no longer burdensome. 
Jesus spoke of himself this way. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30, he said, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yes, he was talking about salvation through him, that don't go all the other ways of your man-made ways. You think you're trying to please God and you're going to merit God's favor. Instead, come to Christ. But he says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. We are not alone in our obedience. Christ is there to help us. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on, church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command. It means if you're like, well, I don't just get up in the morning and just fully walk in perfect obedience. You're right, none of us do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Do you know for the believer, there's no greater joy than bringing God glory in our lives? There's no greater joy. And Jesus is always there to help. The Holy Spirit is always there to empower us. And so John argues, look, not only do you believe, if you're born of God, you believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ. You believe in him alone, but you also love God, his people, and you also obey his commandments. And he goes, so, so what's the so what? He gets to the final point. He says, well, those who are born of God, they overcome. So let's close out in this final point. Verses four and five, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So the first thing we see is the reality of overcoming. John makes it clear it's those who are born of God who overcome the world. John likes this word overcome. Out of 28 times it's used in the New Testament, John uses it 24 of those times. The word overcomer comes from the Greek word nike. The word translated victory is a form of nike. The word means to conquer, to gain victory, to overcome. Those of you all look around that currently have a little swoosh on the side of your shoe. You also have the word Nike, although we say it Nike, the goddess of victory. And same idea. John says that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, has victory over the world. And so when he speaks of the world here, he's speaking of the evil forces of this age that oppose God, the world that is at war with God. It has been rightly said, quote, Christians don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Christ has already won the victory for us on Calvary, end quote. John says that victory is rooted in faith. Faith in what Christ has already accomplished. It is through Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, that we too defeat Satan and sin and the evil world system. Jesus, speaking of himself in John 16, says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is victorious. Those who are in Jesus are also victorious. Because he has overcome, so will his children, which means we have been freed from the tyranny of the enemy, no longer in bondage to deeds of our flesh, what the scripture describes as sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. We now overcome. We are freed from the power of of sin. John describes those things in John chapter 2, verse 16, as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It is through Christ's resurrection that we have been freed also, as we heard this morning in our readings, from the sting of death. All who are born of God are overcomers in him. Paul puts it this way. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, that is victory. Last thing this morning, we will close. Second part about being an overcomer is the substance of our overcoming. John says in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Without Christ, there is no victory. Without Christ, there is only judgment. Fearful, dreadful, eternal judgment. But through Christ, there is victory. There is forgiveness of sins. There is everlasting life. There is grace to overcome obstacles of this present life. But you must know the Jesus of the Bible, not, as I said earlier, the Jesus of your imagination. It is Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is this Jesus whom you must know. Do you know this Jesus? Do you trust him alone? for salvation. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Make no mistake about it. If you know him, you have everything. You've been born of God. And so now you believe in him alone. And it's evidence that you've been born of him of God because now you see love in your life. You see a desire to obey God. And you are now guaranteed as a victor, as Christ was. Before I close us in prayer this morning, let's take a moment quietly to reflect between us and the Lord individually on how the Spirit would be ministering to us through his word this morning. So let's take a quiet minute now. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the treasure we have in your Son. We praise you for choosing us and gifting us with salvation in Jesus. Father, we thank you for the spiritual rebirth in our lives and the evidence of it through our faith in Christ and the fruit of love and obedience. We thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not have salvation in Christ, that does not know this Jesus we have spoken of from your word, that you would draw them to repentance and faith today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.